So Mark chapter uh, 12, and starting reading at verse 13. This is God's word. Then they sent to him some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his words. When they had come, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and care about no one, for you do not regard the person of man, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why do you test me? Bring me a denarius and that I may see it. So they brought it and he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus answered and said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Then some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to him and they asked him saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife behind and leaves no children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and dying, he left no offspring. And the second took her and he died, nor did he leave any offspring. And the third likewise. So the seven had her and left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be? For all seven had her as a wife. Jesus answered and said to them, Are you not therefore mistaken? Because you do not know the scriptures, nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But concerning the dead, that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the burning bush passage, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are therefore greatly mistaken. Then one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, he asked him, Which is the first commandment of all? Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second, like it, is this, You shall love your neighbour as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So the scribe said to him, Well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth. For there is one God, and there is no other but he. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbour as oneself, is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. But after that, no one dared question him. We'll end our reading there at verse 34. And thank God for his blessing. Well, do keep your uh, Bibles open, folks, as we look at this passage together. I wonder if you've ever watched Question Time uh, on the television. I tend not to watch Question Time. I quite enjoy it, but it's not good for my blood pressure, 
I find. It's like the Nolan show that way. Um, but you know what Question Time is? It's a TV show. There's, there's a bunch of politicians, sometimes celebrities, and they get asked questions by members of the public. And then they spend five or ten minutes trying to avoid actually answering the question. Basically, it's good questions followed by bad answers. In our passage this morning, we find the opposite, the exact opposite of that. Just as he was in last week's passage, Jesus is approached and he's asked a question. In fact, in our passage, we have three groups asking three questions. And I think it could be described as the opposite of question time because what we find here in Mark 12 are bad questions followed by good answers. Each question is asked by a different group within the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the ruling council of the Jews and it was made up of the different sects within the Jews. And so what we see is there's almost like a coordinated attack on Jesus. They came, there was a delegation who came last week and asked him a question. And now this week we see three different questions from each group within the Sanhedrin. Two of the questions, uh, which like we've seen before, are designed to, to trip Jesus up, to catch him in a trap, to condemn himself. I think the third question's a little different. It, it does seem to be offered in an earnest and genuine manner. And, and the person asking likes the answer. He accepts the answer. And it's in the third question that we kind of, we get a summary of the other answers. All of these questions are about the Christian life. They're about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. In answer to each one of the questions, Jesus teaches the same thing. He teaches us that when we are, we are his followers, our lives must be lives of love. Love is the key word today. The purpose that we were created for as human beings is to know, to love and to live for God. That's the overarching theme of all three questions. We're not made to live for ourselves. We're made to know God, to love God, and to live for God. I'm going to look through each of the three questions and answers one at a time. The first question comes from the Pharisees and Herodians. You can see their question in verse 14. Uh, sorry, verses 14 and 15. They, they kick off with a bit of flattery. Um, they, they try to flatter Jesus. It, it seems disingenuous at best, but they're not wrong in what they say. They say, teacher, we know that you are true. Jesus is true. And then they go on to say, you care about no one, for you do not regard, regard the person of man, but teach the way of God in truth. So they're not genuine. They're not asking a genuine question, but they have described Jesus quite well. Jesus is true. Jesus is the truth. It's not that Jesus is just able to, to keep in step with what is true. He is the one who defines truth. It's everybody and everything else that should be keeping in step with Jesus. And then the Pharisees say, well, they say that he doesn't care about anyone. Perhaps they're trying to make him look bad and we don't, we don't believe it. We, we've seen Jesus 
care about people. There are many times when he is moved with compassion in the gospel accounts. We know that. But I would draw out from what the Pharisees say here that Jesus spoke and embodied the truth in such a way that he would speak it even if it meant offending people. That's, I think, what they meant by he doesn't regard the person of man. And you'll know this in your life. Sometimes, doesn't it seem better to tell a white lie than to hurt somebody's feelings? Sometimes that feels like it's the case. I'm not suggesting for a moment that we should hurt somebody's feelings. But speaking the truth, no matter how gently we do it, will mean that people are offended at times. From the example of Jesus, though, what we can see is that speaking the truth is loving. It is caring. It is compassionate to speak the truth. And so this comes back to the main point today. We're we're made to know God, to love God, and to live for God, not for ourselves. In fact, if, if we want the best for ourselves and for those around us, what we need is truth. We need the truth of God's word. It's damaging for us to drift from God's word in the interest of not offending people. Because God knows how life in this world works best. Some people will be offended by what God's word teaches. But that doesn't mean that it's not for their ultimate good. What good is it for someone to avoid a little bit of offence in this world, but then go into an eternity of suffering and torment? It's no good at all. The most caring and most loving thing that we can do for ourselves is tell ourselves the truth. And the most loving and caring thing we can do for our neighbours is to tell them the truth. How do we know the truth? Well, we know the truth through the scriptures. What is the point of our lives? The the point of our lives in this world is to know and love and live for God, to live in the truth. And so as we've seen in Mark's gospel, Jesus is the truth. Jesus can't be diverted away from teaching the truth of God. And so what will he do with the Pharisees' question? You see the Pharisees question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? It's not an easy question to answer. There is a trap for Jesus. You can see what the Pharisees are trying to do. They're trying to put Jesus in a corner so that he has to take one side or the other. If he sides with the Romans and says that people should pay taxes, then he will offend all the people in the crowd. Remember, the, the, the people were living under a Roman government, and this government was cruel and oppressive. None of them would have enjoyed paying taxes to Rome. I mean, none of us like paying taxes, do we, at any time? But, but paying them to a government who only use those taxes to line their own pockets and who aren't interested in your good at all, well, that would be terrible. Up to this point, the crowd have been on Jesus's side. We've seen in previous weeks that it's it's the crowd who give us the best example 
of what being a Jesus follower actually looks like. But if Jesus starts to say that paying taxes is a good idea, surely they'll turn on him. But then what's the other option? His other option is to reject the idea of paying taxes to Rome. Well, if he did that, then the Pharisees would be able to hand him over to the Roman government and say, here's a revolutionary who is telling people they shouldn't pay their taxes. The Romans wouldn't have any time for that. So you can see the trap. The Herodians and Pharisees have have said Jesus is a man who doesn't care about offending people, but then they put him in a trap where he's going to have to offend one side or the other. Either way, it'll likely end up with Jesus being beaten or imprisoned or killed. But of course, Jesus knew what they were up to and he asked them to bring them a denarius. Now, a denarius, you might know this, it's a Roman coin. And actually, one silver denarius was the annual tax that the Jewish people had to pay the Roman Empire. And it was an empire, remember, that they hated. And the coin is brought to Jesus and he says, whose image and inscription is this? And the point is this, it was a Roman coin. It was minted in Rome for use within the Roman Empire. And it went out across the whole empire. These, these coins went out across the whole empire. And anybody who saw that coin saw the image of the Caesar. We have the queen's head on our coins, don't we? No matter where you go across her kingdom, if you want to live here, if you want to use money, you have to use money that has the queen's image on it. This is a, an ancient way for monarchs to bring glory to themselves. That across their whole, the whole place where they rule, their image is covering the place. It's in your pockets. It's in your wallets. It's in that wee section that you're meant to put a cup in behind the gear stick in the car. It's down the back of your sofa. The queen's image covers her kingdom. Every time you or I use money, we are reminded that we are living in her kingdom. That was the point. So it was with Caesar and the Roman coins in the Roman Empire. He was the one who made the coins and and they spread across his kingdom, showing that his image, showing his image across the place and bringing honour and glory to the Caesar. Think about what that would have meant in days before television or the internet or the printing press. The picture of the Caesar, the, the image of the Caesar is carried across the empire. So everybody knows what the Caesar looks like. They've seen his face on a coin. But everybody who was listening to Jesus knew that Caesar wasn't the only one who had placed his image on something. We know that human beings are made in the image of God, don't we? And God's image has spread from Eden across the whole world. And as we spread, we carry God's image. We spread his glory and his honour across the whole world. This is a really, really important aspect of Christian teaching. It's a a biblical way to understand the world. You have been made in God's image. You were created to display God's glory, 
wherever you go. Everywhere you find yourself, you are displaying the glory of the God who made you. So it makes sense, doesn't it, that in his image, we would need to know him and live for him and love him. And that's exactly what Jesus is teaching here. What does he say? He says, see this little coin? Give it to Caesar. Caesar made it. It has his face and his inscription on it. It's his coin. Give it to him. But your life does not belong to Caesar. Your life belongs to the one who made you. The one who placed his image on you. Your life belongs to God. You see how Jesus avoids the trap? Caesar owned the coin, but he didn't own the people. Jesus allows for taxes to be paid, but he doesn't betray the people's lives into the hands of Caesar. It's a brilliant answer. Our lives are not owned by the state. They're owned by God. And so it's the duty of every Christian to give over our whole lives to God, our liberty, our possessions, our affections, the the things that we long for, the things that we desire, all of these belong to God. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Well, the second question to Jesus comes from the Sadducees. In a moment, I'm going to make a joke about the name the Sadducees. I'm just warning you now, it's not a very funny joke, but I'm giving you the warning so that you're prepared to give me a pity laugh, okay? See if you can spot the joke when it comes around. There's something in particular we need to know about the Sadducees. Mark tells us in verse 18, they're asking a question about the resurrection, but they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in the resurrection from the dead. It's no wonder they were so sad, you see. Okay, I'll move on. I'll not use that joke again. Their question is complicated. It's deliberately complicated. It's one of those questions that it's meant to start a bit of debate. It's, it's meant to, to get a bit of chat going, but they're not really, they don't really think that there's an answer to it. It's rooted in the Old Testament law and it has to do with a Jewish practice called Leverite marriage. And it basically said that if, if a man dies, his brother, a man dies and doesn't leave any children, his brother should marry the widow. It was a law designed to protect women. It was designed to keep a family name alive. And it was designed to ensure that offspring uh, were there for an inheritance to be passed to them. It was a good law given for the benefit of many people. But the Sadducees take it to a ridiculous place and they ask, what about these seven brothers? The first marries a woman and then he dies and there's no children. Then the second marries her and he dies and there's no children. And the third likewise. And all seven brothers marry this woman and then she dies. In the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Now, they are deliberately confusing the issue. They're, make, they're taking it to the nth degree to make it complicated. And remember, they don't even believe in the resurrection. But Jesus isn't fooled. Jesus is able to give them an answer. He's critical of them, very critical. You can see what he says in verse 24. They don't know the scriptures and they don't believe in the power of God. 
And then he goes on to answer their question and he addresses it in two ways. There's the immediate surface level question, whose wife will she be? But then there's also a deeper question going on about the resurrection in general. Verse 25, Jesus says, When they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given a marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now, I have to say the commentators aren't entirely in agreement about what this verse means. Some say that earthly marriages will be dissolved when we get to glory. And the reality which marriage points to will become what's most important, the union of Christ and his church. That's hard to hear. It's hard to hear, especially for those who have lost a husband or a wife. Other commentators disagree with that. Other commentators say that it just means that in heaven there will be no new marriages. I'm not going to land on either side of the fence today, but I want to say this. And it's back to our main point. The Christian life is lived to know and love God. So what should we expect heavenly life to be like? It's knowing and loving God. We shouldn't be seeking heaven simply to be reunited with loved ones who have gone before us. Even all those who have gone before us with the same surname as we have. We shouldn't be seeking heaven because of the people who are there. We should be seeking heaven because Christ is there. I am sure, I'm convinced that the New Testament teaches us there will be a day of reunion whenever we're reunited with our friends and our family who are Christians. That day exists in the future. But on that day, what's going to be the most important thing for us? It will be worshipping our Saviour. It will be worshipping our Lord and King Jesus Christ. This is a John Piper quote. I find it really helpful. You've maybe heard me use it before. Piper says, the critical question for our generation and every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, and all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict and no natural disasters, would you be satisfied with heaven if Christ wasn't there? I hope not. I hope not. The Sadducees are, they're trying to trip Jesus up, but there is an important point. Your desire in this life and the next should be for Jesus. And it's Jesus who, who brings us into the next life. It's only through Christ and his resurrection that we can experience resurrection from the dead. I don't want to linger too long on this point, but the second part of Jesus' response is really important. It teaches how the Christian life works. How is it that we know, love, and live for God? Well, it's through the Scriptures. It's through the Bible as we read it, as we hear it preached. How does Jesus answer the Sadducees' question? Well, he quotes the Bible. He demonstrates their error. He shows them, he takes them to the burning bush passage. And he says, how can God say he is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, 
who are dead. Unless Abraham, Isaac and Jacob are not dead, but alive. Friends, I think we can be guilty of the error that the Sadducees are guilty of simply because we don't know our Bibles well enough. To know God, we must read his word. This book that we have been given helps us to get to know the creator of the universe. That's why it's so important for us to read it, to study it, to get to know the one who wrote it. That happens here on a Sunday. That's what we're here for, to get to know God. But I also hope you're reading it in your own time, in your own homes, personally, with your family. We're trying to provide help for you to do that. We provide a midweek Bible study. Provide Bible studies for young men and young women in the congregation. Friends, we have been created to know, live and love God. Live for and love God. And the primary way we do that is through his word. If you need some more personalised help, if you're not even sure about how to go about starting reading the Bible, please let me know. There's no judgment here. Please let me know. I'd be more than happy to walk you through how to go about it. Let's move on to our final point today. It's really more like a conclusion. The the final point sums up what we've been saying so far. The question of the scribe, verse 28, which is the first commandment of all? Now, he doesn't mean in order, but the commandment's in order. He means what's the most important? And Jesus answers him plainly, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. That's what we've been saying all along, isn't it? What are we made for? What's our created purpose? To know, love, and live for God. And so Jesus takes the two halves of the Ten Commandments, the two tables of the law, and he says, love God and love your neighbour. And so he sums the whole thing up in love. It might sound a bit odd that we're being commanded to love God. Does that sound a bit selfish of God? Why is he commanding us to love him? I want to say this. God does not need us to love him. God is not lonely. God is not desperate for people to love him. God is three persons who exist in an eternal unity of love. So God does not need our love. But because we've been made in his image... He knows that what is best for us is that we love him. Without love for God, we're not being who we were created to be. If we don't love God, he is not missing out. But we are. And so God commands us to love him so that we would be fulfilled. So that we would be joyful. So that we would have greater pleasure than we ever knew was possible. And then, just like God our maker, whose image is placed upon us when we love him, that love spills out. It pours over. 
as a demonstration of his love, we love one another. We love our neighbour as ourselves. This is immensely practical teaching from Jesus. These questions are fired at him. Some of them are quite academic and intellectual. They're difficult questions. They're designed to trap him and trip him up. But Jesus comes out with amazing answers and then boils it down to one simple word, love. What does it mean to live for God? Love. A love for God that overflows, that pours out to those around us. A love that is a mirror image of God. The one that we've been created to look like. A love that lays down its life. That's willing to give up its own personal preferences for the good of others. God has loved us with the everlasting love that sent Christ to die upon the cross. A deep and a relational love. And that is the love that we should have for God. That's the love that we should have for others. With all of our heart and soul and mind and strength given over. Given over to God in love and loving our neighbour as ourselves. Love is the greatest commandment. Bad questions, but the best answer love. Let me pray for us.